Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well-being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Today, I welcome Nicholas Stein, certified mindfulness facilitator who wrote the book Mindfulness as a Second Language. We will discuss Nick's journey into meditation, the birth of secular mindfulness, as well as the importance of dropping into your body and letting go of expectations. My name is Nicholas Stein, and I am currently a uh, meditation teacher, mindfulness practitioner, author of a book called Mindfulness as a Second Language, and a retiree from 40 years in the television production business, documentaries, nonfiction, etc., etc. Can you describe your journey into mindfulness and the breaking point in your career when you decided to make this turn? I was in the television production business. Um, I was in nonfiction, which meant documentaries. I was in the golden era of cable television, and I worked for the likes of National Geographic and the Discovery Channel and A&E and History Channel and PBS and all the networks and so forth, uh, which was a tremendously uh, interesting career. But my headlong uh, dive into a very dark hole happened as a result of uh, one of the biggest shows I ever did, which was called Border Wars. Uh, it was on National Geographic. Uh, my crews and I were embedded uh, for nearly four years uh, with law enforcement at the U.S.-Mexican border, as well as in Puerto Rico and in South Florida. And uh, for four years, I saw some of the most intense suffering I had ever imagined. Uh, we were truly in the trenches, <clears throat> and um, every day was sort of an exhilarating horror show, in a sense, pulling dead bodies out of the Rio Grande River, uh, finding dope strapped to the waists of uh, 10-year-old children crossing the border, um, people in safe houses who were being um, abused and, uh, and um, uh, treated horribly by cartel uh, guards, I went on and on and on, and uh, some very near misses of, of my crews and I dying ourselves. By the time the show ended, we'd done 60 episodes, and I was a mess. Um, I had really gotten to a place of burnout. I had been mostly gone from home for almost about 70% of the time over four years, because I included being at the border, and then I'd be home for a while, and then I'd be in New York, where we were editing the show, then I'd be in D.C., where National Geographic is, as well as all the law enforcement headquarters. So I was never home. My marriage almost fell completely apart. And uh, so it was uh, not, uh, by the end of it, it was rough. So um, a lot of other things happened where I won't go into it. A lot of incredibly intense politics um, uh, at National Geographic and Fox, who owned us at the time. But the result of the whole thing was I was sort of crawled away from the show, despite it being a huge hit. By the end, I was really not in good shape. So I think I'm like a lot of people who end up finding meditation out of kind of a desperation. I didn't know what to do. Um, I really didn't have a good plan of what to do when I was that depressed and anxious. So the sh short story is I got a phone call while I was in uh, Laredo, Texas, asking me if I'd want to work in Montreal, Canada. And I said yes, because I figured if I went home at that point, I'd probably be divorced. 
And I didn't know what else to do. So I just grabbed that vine in the jungle. And I uh, went up there and sort of faked my way through this job, which was uh, running the post-production, which is where the editing happened for a different show altogether. And uh, I was sort of descending uh, when I um, was told over and over again by my therapist, who I was Skyping with at the time, that I should really look into mindfulness and meditation, and I should really read a book by John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> Uh, and I resisted and I resisted and I don't have a background in spiritual life. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an inner life. Well, finally, I was so desperate. I, uh, I went downtown Montreal, bought the book, read the first two chapters and finally began to understand how to go about it. So I committed myself to one week <laughs> of meditating 15 minutes a day for seven days. And if it wasn't going to work, if it didn't see any progress, I'd quit. So this was a real, <laughs> real test on whether I could see anything. Now, you know, there's no instant results with meditation and mindfulness, but I, I gave myself this deadline anyway. And I kept reading the book and found out all the ways that you can misunderstand what meditation and mindfulness is about because in my generation I tried it any number of times and my mind exploded into the three-ring circus of the human condition and I would quit so I had no clue how to do it so now I was learning and after one week I began to really feel hope and uh, that's all I needed and so I kept going and I kept going and I availed myself of other teachers you know through podcasts and other things uh, and then I, I ended up joining a group in uh, Montreal and so on and so forth until finally I came home long story short repaired my marriage which of course wasn't overnight ended up going to UCLA uh, training uh, deepening my practice and then uh, becoming a, certified to become a teacher because that's where I realized I wanted to go and uh, so the rest is sort of his history but that's the shortest version I can tell of getting in deep, deep trouble and uh, digging my way down to a deep hole in the ground. And then finally I stopped digging and I started to crawl out and, and I haven't stopped meditating since. We discussed before that you're the only man in your meditation group right now. <laughs> um, what do you think about that? I mean, is, is there a reason that men seem to be pushed away from this practice yeah it's mostly me and about nine to twelve women depending on who shows up and uh i've had men in the group but they don't last i don't know what it is i think men have a harder time recognizing that there is an inner landscape to explore they like i this is the way i was i didn't know there was and if you don't know there is and no one gives you a map on how to find it and you don't uh, aren't aren't f getting good instruction on um, the path to stillness. You don't know what you don't know, or guys are too um, I don't know about doing and not being. It's hard to say, but uh, the men I do know who are on this path are beautiful guys, and uh, uh, they were comrades for me and. Uh, so it's, it's a, that's a, a, a conundrum. Why, why there aren't more men in this field? It's hard to say. But some of my greatest teachers, of course, are men. I mean, I'm talking Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, John Kabat-Zinn, <laughs> and the list goes on and on. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So can you describe um, in your own terms, what is meditation? Well, what is meditation? I'd have to really should go back and read my own book about it. <laughs> meditation, the way I would describe it, is, is about two words, really, that sound awfully much alike. Uh, and those words are intention and attention. The intention is to go within and is to find stillness and is to create uh, an environment in which you can do that on a regular basis. You have to create conditions for that or it won't happen. You've got to create a space in your house or your apartment. You've got to carve out time. You've got to find ways that will um, encourage you to practice because that's what it is. It's a practice. It's, it means you, you, you literally have to be active about this sort of thing. It doesn't just happen on its own. And as a lot of people think, well, they say, I meditate while I'm gardening or I meditate when I'm walking or I meditate when I'm riding my horse. And I always say, that's fine. You can be mindful doing all those things, but, it, but if you really want to learn how to be mindful on the cushion, you've got to get on the cushion and really be still. There's no substitute for that. So that's got to be your intention. And then, of course, your attention is really learning that where you put your attention is your life. That is your reality. You can only take in so much as a human being. I mean, we look at the great big picture of life through a keyhole. And what we see through the keyhole is our life. So you learn that this business about trying to be more aware of, of the unfolding present moments of your life turns out to be a really big deal. Partly because we find out right away that we rarely ever go there. <laughs> It's a shock, really, to realize that you've spent your whole life ignoring the only moments in your life that actually exist. It sort of really is shocking to, to find out that the past is gone, completely in the rearview mirror, never coming back. It's over. It's history. The future is pure fantasy and speculation. You have no clue what's going to happen. If you think you do, you know, you're going to be in for a lot of surprises. So right now is all we have. Literally, right now is all we have. And so when you start to really contemplate the present moment or trying to, because the present moment's over right now, then there's the next one. So it's, a, it's jumping on a moving train. <laughs> but nevertheless, jump you do, and um, you realize that this is it. This is where your life really is. In the sense of um, you're not... Anxious about the future, you're not regretful about the past. It's a refuge where right here and right now you're fine. And this is where you find peace. This is where you find equanimity. This is where you tune into your body. This is where you come home to yourself. Yeah, um, I really resonated with what you said. <laughs> it's funny uh, the degree of time we spend living in the past or the future when it, neither of them are currently existing. Um, so I'm curious how you feel that meditation plays a role in the journey of mindfulness and you know how important is it to becoming more mindful? Mm -hmm. Well, 
you know, when I teach, and I and I do teach in a variety of venues, um, and I forgot to tell you that I teach a lot of cops. I teach a lot of men and women in law enforcement. That goes back to my days on border wars where I was embedded with them, got to know them, wanted to teach them, wanted to, uh, once I was certified, I really wanted to work with that population. But, you know, w what I tell them is, like any other discipline, like if you wanted to uh, play the violin in a symphony orchestra, you would have to be at home in a quiet space practicing and practicing and practicing. The same thing is with the way uh, mindfulness and meditation, the way they operate together. So let's just start at the beginning. So mindfulness and meditation, or meditation and mindfulness, two words that start with M. Are they the same thing? No. Do they overlap and integrate together? Yes. And it goes pretty much, the best analogy I have is, if you want to get fit, you go to a gym. And when you're sitting in meditation, you're, you're really at the gym of your mind. In this regard, say you're doing, at the gym, you're doing reps on, you're building up your, your muscles, literally. And when you're sitting in the cushion in meditation and you're paying attention to your breath, you are, you are essentially building up the muscle of mindfulness in this way. It is not easy to pay attention to your breath or any other anchor you may choose because there's more than one anchor, but you say well, we work with the breath. When you try to, you find out quickly your mind will wander. It will, it will wander. You shouldn't beat yourself up about it. It is the way the mind works. It's always looking for other kinds of stimulation. Uh, it, it, your thoughts come pouring in, and anyone who's tried it certainly can attest to that. The idea is that when you wake up to your wandering mind, and you know you're intentionally trying to meditate for 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever you're doing, then you let go of those thoughts like you would let go of a balloon and let it float away, and you come back to the anchor that you're working with, say, in this case, the breath. It's the returning again and again and again, which is analogous to doing reps with the barbell. So you're building the muscle of mindfulness. You're building your ability to pay attention to where you choose your attention to be. This is the this is the thing about intention and attention. So you have the intention to meditate and then you're training your attention to return to where you want it to be. And then quickly you find out your mind will wander again. Great. That's not a bad thing. A lot of people beat themselves up about it. That's a good thing. That's actually the thing you're trying to do is watch your wandering mind, see the power of the mind to disobey your intention and bring it back, and bring it back, and bring it back. And in this way, you start to get some objectivity about your thinking. Instead of just being lost in thought, you're actually seeing your thoughts. You see the power of your thoughts. And uh, so by building up that, that muscle of, uh, of mindfulness, you get off the cushion and onto your regular life. And because you've trained yourself to come back again and again to the present moment, you suddenly start to populate your days with these moments of mindfulness where you drop in to your body, you drop in to the present moment, you drop into the environment, and you 
um, you're present. Now, a couple of examples. It could be as simple as you're at a traffic stop and you remember that, oh, mindfulness, and you feel your hands on the wheel of the car. Maybe you turn down the radio and roll down the window and you see it's a beautiful day. And then perhaps you see there's a mom and a, and a five-year-old who are, you know, crossing the street and you notice what they're wearing or something. Then you're, you know, and you know you're, you're in the present. You, you make an, an intention. This is not accidental. You do it consciously. Um, and, and, and as you populate that day more and more, then you're really present when you're talking to your friend. You're really present when you're talking to a coworker or your children. You're really present to see the clouds in the sky. You Suddenly, you're not missing your life. You're not on automatic pilot where you're just sort of blindly reacting to the environment and, 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 and never taking stock of how you feel, what you see, all your senses are open. This is what it is to be mindful. So you meditate to train how to be... You meditate not to become a better meditator. You meditate to become, learn how to be more mindful, and then you take that training into the real world and you start to become more mindful, which means you don't actually miss your actual life. You talked about in your book, and I've just heard this in my personal life too, this idea of being a bad meditator, because there's so many misconceptions that the mind is just going to stop wandering all of a sudden yeah. when we focus on the breath. Yeah. Um, and... You know, that's through research, it's been found that that's just not possible. The mind is meant to wander. Um, so what would you say to someone who struggles with that and it pushes them away from wanting to meditate? Uh, that's a great question because it happens all the time. Not only uh, do people uh, have difficulty because they don't understand what you just said, which was, you know, the mind will do what the mind does. I mean, it, this is huge supercomputer, you know, lodged in the cranium of, of these, of us who are high, these ridiculously evolved creatures who are sentient and understand much more than we can even imagine. Our brains are, are, are just beyond anything in the universe that we know of. Uh, and they're complicated and, and they're always thinking, 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 thinking. Now, I've had so many people come up to me and said, Nick, I would love to meditate. I mean, I would love to. Oh, boy, do I need it. He said, but, but they say to me, but you don't understand. My mind races all the time. I mean, it just, it just races all the time. So I can't meditate. And I always just look at them bemusedly. <laughs> and I finally say, what do you think my mind does? Mm -hmm. What do you think all of our minds do? I said, am I not a human being? Are you not a human being? I said... You just described the human condition. You didn't describe yourself as some kind of special person who, who, who suddenly has a racing mind, as a gerbil on a wheel in your mind. Of course, I said, you just described the human condition. So, so, what, so bottom line is everyone can meditate. Everyone can learn to meditate. Everyone can learn to, 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 to try to be more mindful through meditation. But you have to learn the proper way to do it. And I mean, I don't mean there's one way to do it, but you have to learn some discipline and some ground rules for the contemplative life. And then you've got to practice just like anything else. And it is super difficult. As a matter of fact, for beginners, it's really daunting. Why? Because you sit down to meditate, and particularly if you don't know what you're doing, 
and your monkey mind becomes King Kong because you are suddenly quiet. You've hopefully put your phone away <laughs> and there's no distractions. And that is like red meat <laughs> for the mind to go completely crazy. So instead of finding uh, serenity on demand, you find exactly the opposite. And you think, you know, like I did for years, I suck at this. I'm no good at this. And I, I you know, I'll try again next year. I mean, it's really like that. I, that's how I was. Um, but the truth is that when your mind explodes and then you realize your mind's exploding for the first time, instead of being lost completely in thought, you see what your mind is capable of doing. You see what your mind does to you all the time. That's the beginning of awareness. That's the objectivity that you're looking for. That's when you realize, oh my God, this is going to be a journey. <laughs> because my mind, like everybody else's mind, is kind of, like I say, a three-ring circus. And then the courage part takes in. Then you have to have courage. Because as I say to the cops that I teach, who are often quite cynical about this practice, um, I said, you know what? Um, going face to face with yourself may be the most terrifying thing you ever do. So don't tell me it's soft or hippie or, you know, swamis or incense and all that. I said, you know, I said, I, I tell these cops, I said, your mind is like a neighborhood you wouldn't want to walk through alone. And then they kind of look at me like, uh-oh, <laughs> he, he knows us. And I said, and so I'm going to teach you, at least introduce you to uh, walking in that neighborhood and hanging out in that neighborhood and coming face to face with yourself. It is scary. It, 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 is, it is difficult. Uh, it can be um, even what a lot of people say. It's boring. So you have to get, become interested in all of it. You have to come interested in the challenge. You've got to come interested in the discomfort. You've got to come interested in the boredom until you practice enough that you start to find the peace. You will find it. It does come, not every session, because you always come to the, to the cushion in a different state of mind every time. But you really can find a lot of what you're looking for if you stick to it. Yeah. Yeah, I spoke with um, Dr. Jonathan Schooler last week, who um, is researching mind wandering and even some of its benefits to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and so something we discussed is it's not the idea of getting rid of the mind wandering, but instead you become aware. So you get to choose which parts you would like to continue to wander with and which parts are maybe not so productive. So in your own practice, how do you find this? How do you choose? Some people think that a meditation practice involves clearing your mind of all thoughts or suppressing all your thoughts and emotions, somehow trying to um, get some kind of clean slate. Well, we know that's not possible. You, your thoughts, I'm talking about in meditation, will intrude, and, 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 and I, I uh, have already described why that's okay and why that is the beginning of awareness and why that begins to give yourself some objectivity about these thoughts. You are not your thoughts. 
they come and go at lightning speed and you're still there. Uh, you don't know what your next thought is going to be, ever. <laughs> and as a result, you need to find that separation between the thinking part of you and the rest of you, which is there to be discovered, which is the quieter, deeper part of yourself. Now, we have to think. <laughs> we need to think. This is not anti-thought. When it comes to your daily life, you're going to be, even as a long-term practitioner, you have to constantly wake yourself up to the fact that you are thinking and cascading discursive ways endlessly. And you populate your day with these mindful moments. Uh, hopefully, over time, you have more control of what you want to invest in in terms of your thinking. So it will help your focus. It will help you stay on task. It will help you be um, less distracted, less um, um, fragmented, and you will find that it really helps you uh, in all aspects of your life. Now, this is a tall order in the digital age. So this is uh, a time which is not like, you know, in the Buddha's time where, where <laughs> there's very little going on and you could meditate and, and so forth. This is a tough time to do it, but it's probably one of the top reasons to practice this art form because we are being pulled in so many directions. You've got to give yourself some fighting chance to find some stillness in your life Otherwise, you'll never know it. You'll just be lost and drowning in the digital tidal wave of life. And so it's hard, but this is one of the top reasons to engage and initiate a practice. Yeah, and it's hard, I think, in our culture. Uh, it's very goal-focused and yeah. um, productivity-focused. Yeah. So people go into meditation with needing to track progress or like you said I have a week and I better be calmer and it's like you know that kind of ruins the whole point of the process of just being present with whatever's there and sometimes it's not going to be calmness uh it's true it's it there's a certain irony to it and you know this goes way back to the early days of uh, contemplation and you know whether it's buddhism or even pre-buddhism and all the various uh traditions and religions that use contemplation and stillness and quiet. Um, it's, it's often called uh, making an effortless effort. Uh, it, it is introducing yourself to the art of being and not doing. And it's really hard, particularly for Westerners, particularly for Americans, to stop doing uh, a lot of people will feel in the beginning this is sort of unproductive and uh, they've got not getting enough done. They're navel, I've even heard the term navel gazing, which is really ironic because um, the people will look at others meditating. Let's say you walk into a meditation group and you see everyone's with their eyes closed and they're being quiet. And to the uninitiated, it looks like they're in some kind of trance and they just you know, they can be quite pejorative about the whole thing. But the truth is, well, they walk away from this meditation group and they walk down the street or they get in their car and they go to wherever they're next going to go. 
uh, and they are lost in their discursive thinking, they're in a trance. The people who are learning to be still, the people who are learning to, to, to value the present moment, they're waking up. And the people who don't understand that and the people who don't practice that are really uh, on automatic pilot and essentially are asleep. They're in the past. They're in the future. They're anywhere but where they are. Uh, they are distracted and lost and they don't even know it. Yeah, and you mentioned this really important aspect of uh, Buddhism and the role that that plays in meditation. So I'm curious your thoughts on the secularization of meditation. Um, how can we still, you know, honor these roots and, and understand where it comes from, but maybe make it more accessible to Westerners who, mm -hmm. you know, want to go with the hardcore research and science aspect. It's very interesting uh, what we now call secular meditation or secular mindfulness. The father of secular mindfulness uh, is unquestionably John Kabat-Zinn, who was a molecular biologist from MIT who worked in the medical field. And he famously um, gathered all these people at the University of Massachusetts uh, Hospital uh, who had chronic pain, uh, either mental or physical pain, uh, PTSD, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, physical, chronic pain, and so forth. And he, uh, way back in 1979, I think, um, told them famously, I can't you know, take away your pain any more than the doctors who recommended you to this group could. Um, but I can help you change your relationship to the pain. So I tell people, we're all in a pain clinic. We live in a pain clinic. And it's just a matter of, of how in the world are you going to change your relationship to the challenges and the, and the, and, and, and the, and the pain and the suffering small s and big s <laughs> that we go through. Now, this is the heart of the Buddhist teachings, which is using mindfulness and meditation to mitigate suffering in all of its forms and to, um, and to um, try to r find the roots of the suffering, uh, something called the Four Noble Truths, but I won't go into all of that. But um, at the end of the day, it was John Kabat-Zinn, who was a practicing Buddhist, who realized, before he started this work at the hospital, that if meditation and mindfulness were simply um, siloed in the um, arena of religion or ancient traditions, most Americans would not avail themselves of it. If someone said to me, you're a mess, you need to do some Buddhist meditation, I would never have done it. It would get in my way. Uh, so he realized that there, he wanted to secularize it so it could travel, so it could be adopted by people. So, so, so I teach law enforcement how to do meditation. Doctors, professors, CEOs, students, plumbers, <laughs> Taxi drivers, uh, everybody who 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 is seeking the benefits of this practice, there are no barriers to it. And so I applaud the secular movement a lot. Does it interfere with some people's notion of of, of sort of polluting the 
orig origins of this thing, which are you know mostly attributed to Buddhism. Uh, yeah, there's some danger of that. But I tell you, and this has happened to me, and I'm with everybody I know who started in a secular manner and a scientific manner. We can talk about the science in a bit. Once you get into it and it works for you, you get really curious about Buddhism. <laughs> you begin to go, wow, where did this begin? And what, you know, what is the connection to Buddhism? And who was the Buddha? And what did he teach? And so forth. So in a way, uh, you know, clearly, uh, uh, if it wasn't secularized, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Yeah, it's kind of like a pathway to maybe discovering some of the Buddhist aspects. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So you um, mentioned this idea of you can't get rid of pain but change your relationship to it. Um, and that made me think of something you spoke about in your book related to how we decide to reframe some of our thoughts. Um, and I've noticed someone who's dealt with a lot of anxieties, it's always like, I am anxious or I am an anxious person, mm -hmm. instead of anxiety is coming through me, you know, it's going to pass. And then this idea of how we relate to these feelings, um, can you kind of just expand mm -hmm. on, on that? Yeah, uh, you made a very good point. I mean, we all are, are, um, are guilty of saying this. When you say, I am angry, you literally have uh, equated yourself with a temporary condition. I am angry. No, you are not angry. You are you. <laughs> Anger is like a passing storm. It comes, it's, it can take you over for a bit, and it passes. But the more you get this objectivity that we've talked about uh, from your thoughts, knowing you are not your thoughts, you are not angry, you are not your thoughts, you are not your moods, they are passing, like I say, the best analogy is like weather. This is passing low pressure systems coming through your mind. Uh, then, you, then you realize that it's not good language to say, I am angry. Now, it's hard to adapt the newer language to say, you know, or to use your mind to tell yourself, I see anger arising. Uh, I see sadness arising. I see grief arising. I see jealousy arising. Now, that's not easy to stop and get you know, mindful like that, but it is a goal to, 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 to try to do that. But the main thing is when you find yourself to a place where you might say, you know, I am really angry, that's your first clue to go, okay, let's step back and look at this thing. Let's take a deep breath. Let's drop into our bodies. Let's give ourselves a gap between the stimulus and your reactivity, which is thoughtless and mindless, you know, it's like a squirrel, you know, like, you know, what's that? So we have the capability of doing better than that. So you, the stimulus happens and, 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 and you can start to feel the anger coming. Take that deep breath, take that mindful moment, give yourself a gap. And in that gap, it's famously been said, is all of your choices, you can still feel some way, but, but goodness knows it really helps and you're not acting out and saying things particularly that you wish you hadn't said or you, you, you wish you'd had a moment to, to think more about it. So it's like the old adage, count to 10 before you, before you, you, you say something you're going to regret. 
Uh, if you're in a big old fight, which happens to mostly with people who are, you know, wives and husbands and partners, you know, where it's much more intimate. And, uh, you know, there should be a point where you say, listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm just going to take a, a, a 10 minute break and we'll pick it up later. And you can you know what happens there because you can't stay, say, angry without feeding the fire. So your thoughts keep throwing another log on the fire. Your self-righteous thoughts about why you should be angry keeps the anger going when in fact it has a half-life of, of far shorter than that and it will sort of dissipate if you don't keep feeding it. So um, in a way, you really want to use the practice to give yourself and, and therefore you know, helping all those you come in contact with uh, a chance to respond versus react. Those are two words that's used a lot. Give your chest a chance to respond more wisely than just react automatically. And again, it takes time to do this, but, um, but it's important. And I'll say one more thing, which is, as a, even as a veteran practitioner, you're still going to get pissed off. You're still going to be upset. You're still going to be anxious. You're still going to be everything because you're still a human being. But what I have found is I don't get upset for nearly as long. I'm not as anxious as as deeply as I used to be or as wasn't, you know, I don't get worked up to the levels I used to be. I get over things faster. I learn to say I'm sorry easier. I take responsibility quicker. So even though you still have many of these reactions, you, you have the tools now to not let it take you down and put you into a spiral and, you know, start to act like uh, the prosecutor at your own trial who's constantly looking for evidence about why you should feel so lousy. You begin to realize it's just a passing storm in your mind. You can learn to let it go. And so as a result, you may still react a certain way, but you certainly don't have to live in it nearly as long. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting you gave the perspective of um, a veteran meditator. I sat in a meditation with um, someone who's practiced healer their whole life. They grew up in India and with Hinduism, and it was a big part of, of their culture and their religion. Um, and they said to me, the goal is to be a meditator at all times. That is That is ultimately where you get. And, you know, this was scary it almost turned me away from meditation but it was also inspiring in a way because I was like whoa I could reach that point um but I'm curious you know do you feel like that's really possible is that realistic especially you know with the phones and all the things that that we have with our western modern day society well two things about that one is you know because we are so Western and so American and so goal-oriented, you know, your question was, can you get to that point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can I achieve that goal? So, so right away, you know, you, you realize that's how we are and that's how we think about mm -hmm. everything, including, including meditation. So that's very, very natural. Um, I guess the question could be reframed, you know, do you believe in nirvana? <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you believe in, in full en enlightenment? Uh, and, and do you believe that if once you are enlightened, do you stay enlightened? And do you just sort of live in this sort of, you know, romantic idea of nothing bothers you and, uh, you know, you're kind and compassionate to everyone at all times and, uh, you know, you've reached a certain kind of uh, level of, uh, 
of uh, transcending the, most of the human condition. I tell you, the jury's still out uh, for me on that one. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm willing to believe that the Buddha was, but uh, I'm not sure about anybody else. And I certainly don't plan, uh, plan. I certainly don't imagine I will ever be like that. And I don't I set that up as a goal because, um, you know, somebody said expectations is an invitation to uh, disappointment. So uh, I just see it as a path. And sometimes when you sit in difficult times, um, which there are plenty of, this is again where courage comes in. Because you sit what they call in the fire. You don't sit and suddenly you feel better. You sit because you're in pain uh, at that day, on that day uh, uh, or that week or that month. And you lean into it. Now this gets back to John Kabat-Zinn. When he told them to change, that he would help them change their relationship to their pain, he taught them how to not run from it, how to not uh, uh, try to suppress it. He taught them how to become curious about it, to often lean into it, to uh, see that it's not the monolithic idea that they have of it. The one uh, famous analogy is like you have a terrible pain in your back. Well, most of us kind of go, God damn pain in my back. Why do I have this pain in my back? When is the pain going to go away? Why me? And so on and so forth. That's throwing logs on the fire. Doesn't help your pain. Doesn't help you cope with the pain. He was like, okay, be courageous enough. Lean into it. Turns out your pain isn't what you think it is. It's a sensation. It's only your mind that tells you it's good or bad. You mentioned... Um... A lot of these terms like leaning in and sensation and common things we say in a yoga or meditation mm -hmm. class. And I know in your book, I mean, the whole title was Mindfulness as a Second Language. Um, so I'd like you to kind of explain how this became a language and, and what you recommend for people who maybe aren't familiar with these terms and it may mm -hmm. you know push them away or it may confuse them what to do about that. Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, interestingly... My book is called Mindfulness as a Second Language because I didn't sit down just to write this book on my own. Uh, I got recruited mm -hmm. by a really interesting woman named Valerie Alexander, who unbeknownst to me, even though I'd known her for a little while, had a small publishing company uh, in which she's published to date six books. All of the titles are as a second language. So the other titles include Parenting as a Second Language and Grief as a Second Language and Creativity as a Second Language and so forth. The term as a second language comes from Valerie. Now, it's a great conceit for a series of books uh, because when we delve into a subject matter, whether it's grief or parenting or mindfulness, you do learn a whole new lexicon. There are all these words, you know, to help communicate and describe what it is you're talking about. And in, in the world of mindfulness and meditation, we are king of the metaphor. You know, we're constantly trying to find a, a highly visual metaphor to help, you know, sell an idea to, to, to the people you're teaching. So, but the other thing was, it really was a great title for, I think, mindfulness in, in, um, uh, in particular, because uh, and if you read the book, you'll notice that every chapter, this is part of the format of the book, every chapter starts out with kind of this analogy between whatever that chapter is about 
and learning a second language. Whatever that chapter about mindfulness is about learning a second language. So, um, for instance, one chapter is about sitting uh, and, and, and practice. One, uh, I can't remember whether it's in the sitting thing, but anyway, it's about practice. And I said practice in the English language is both a verb and a noun. So when you start your practice, it's a verb, just like I'm going to practice now, uh, just like a, any kind of musical instrument or soccer or whatever, you're gonna, I'm going to practice now, I'm going to go practice, like I'm going to go run. I mean, you know, that's a verb. But once you have established your practice and it's something you're invested in and you've done it for a while, then it becomes a noun because it's your practice that you need to develop and encourage and, and, and protect and, and so forth. So, so that's an example of language and the practice. So that's just one example from the book about, you know, uh, practice as a verb and a noun. So it's a second language. The other part of it is that when you do learn a second language, which uh, full disclosure, I have not learned a second language. But from what I understand, uh, it opens up your mind. You suddenly, you see the world and you hear the world in a different way. And it really is mind expanding. And, and of course, it allows you to communicate with all kinds of other people. So in the same way with, 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 with mindfulness, it is a, it is a world of, of terms that you will hear over and over again, intention, attention, you know, present moment, <laughs> and leaning in, you know, it goes on and on and on. Uh, and, and so in that regard, it's a new vocabulary, but in another sense, it really ex literally sort of expands your mind and lets you see the world in a different way. One thing, um, that I often use when teaching yoga is I say things like soften your jaw or drop your shoulders. And I think, you know, especially living in a society where everything's about the mind and where we approach psychology right. from it's all in your head, this is confusing. Like, oh, right. I'm storing tension in my body. What does that even mean? Right. Um, so right. how would you explain, you know, how that relates to a mindfulness practice? Like, what does yeah. that mean? Well, you have just touched on one of the most foundational parts of, of the meditation practice, and, and goodness knows uh, yoga as well, which is uh, is a fully embodied practice. Um, we like to think, or people think, that it maybe is a practice from the neck up <laughs> because of the way that our senses are um, geared, meaning like, the, our eyes are in our heads and our nose is in our face and our ears are in our face and our tongue is in the taste. So you have your, your five senses only touches something you might not do with your face. <laughs> you might not push an elevator button with your nose. Uh, so, but, but four of the five senses are up in this control tower. So you think it's all in your head and you, and you, and of course your brain is in your skull. But, uh, this is fully embodied. You, the only thing that you do know is present at any given moment is your body. Like right now, you and I are sitting here, right? So I see you, there's your body, it's present. You see me, my body is here, it's present. Now my mind could be in Portugal. <laughs> my mind could be in Mars. But my body is always here. So you start there. It's your anchor, it's your ally. It's, I used to say, um, it's like your body sends a memo to your mind going, I'm here. Do you ever plan on joining me? <laughs> I've been here waiting for you. When are you going to come and just join me? And that is so important. I mean, the first uh, moments of a guided meditation, which I, I do all the time, is drop into your body. Feel the points of contact. 
you know, uh, with the cushion of the chair, the floor, the, uh, the couch, whatever you're doing. Um, drop your shoulders, loosen your jaw, you know, begin to feel the breath. You know, that, that's one reason the breath is such a classical anchor. Again, not the only one, but such a classical anchor. Why? Because it's free, portable, <laughs> uh, ever-present. Uh, it's the only, one of the only uh, bodily functions that we can do on command. There are others, but, but, you know, you can't really tell your liver how to operate, you know. But the breath, you can do it very intentionally. And, of course, you're constantly doing it without mental intention. And if, you, if it didn't work like that, you'd be dead a long time ago. So uh, you then the so the so the breath is is great for so many reasons. It's a classical uh, tool because it also connects your head to your body in the sense that your nose and even your mouth, of course, is in your head and and you're bringing it into your lungs and your body and your belly and and and, and all the rest. So you literally are using the breath to connect your your head. So, and I always said if your if your eyes were in your <laughs> side of your if your nose was down here by your belly button <laughs> and your ears were over on your left arm, you know, you might have a sense of how your body really is the thing that's 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 the main player here because, you know, you'd sense it coming from. But because it's all stuck in your head, uh, you think that everything you're doing is behind your eyes. And the more and more and more you can integrate, integrate your body and be aware of your body and feel the sensations of your body and know that they are passing and everything's impermanent and everything is just a flight of, uh, of sensation or electrical magnetic impulses or whatever, the more you realize that, that it's one whole package and you need to uh, approach the practice like that. Yeah, I think it's such a great tool as well when we're not aware of the stress of our minds because sometimes I'll have negative thoughts but I don't want to pay attention to those but I can tell that oh my shoulders are up towards my ears right. so it's like another indicator of where is my mind at absolutely I have one example in the book and I use it when I teach which I, which I use a lot because people relate to it so much and it's called the uh, the grocery store mindfulness in a grocery store and the short version is we all go to the grocery store <laughs> often multiple times a week. And uh, so what are you doing, all right? You're running around, usually very busy mind, with a grocery list, and you're, you're looking and searching and hunting and pecking and so forth like a treasure hunt. Okay, fine, you fill your basket, and then you go to check out. And you do, we all do this, you scan the battlefield. <laughs> and you try to figure out what is the fastest line to get in. But you're using all kinds of data points, right? It may not be the longest with the most people. It might be who's got the most in their in their bag. You might even decide in our judgmental way that there's a little old lady who's in the front of the line and she's futzing with her credit card and it's, that's going to slow you down. So you, maybe you avoid that line. Anyway, it goes on and on like that. So anyway, then you finally pick a line because you have to. And... <laughs> Nine times out of ten, whatever line you pick, you think, oh, my God, I picked the wrong line. <laughs> and so you immediately start to beat yourself up. And then you get annoyed. And then you get impatient. And then you're, you're, you're making judgments about everything you see, particularly the people in front of you. This is a bloody, enormously uh, consistent waste of time and bandwidth and energy. 
I mean, I even talk to this about executives when I teach executives. I said, you guys are leaders in the industry. What a terrible use of your time to sit there annoyed for the two minutes, the five minutes, whatever it is that you have to stand in line at the grocery store. Why don't you drop into your body? Why don't you feel your feet on the, on the floor? Why don't you open up all five senses? Why don't you listen to the magical symphony of sounds in a grocery store? When you listen to it, it is a beautiful uh, mix of cash registers, or at least it used to be, um, uh, you know, sights, sounds, smells, color. You might suddenly look down aisle three and you see a guy with a mohawk hairdo walk by. You never would have seen that guy. You might see a woman struggling with her two-year-old and have some empathy for her. You know, it, you got nothing better to do. You might as well be in the moment. And I actually have a name for it. I call it, go to, it's called dog, which is drop into your body. That's the D. Open up your senses. That's the O. And then there's, uh, the G is a little tricky. It's like, go to the front of your mind. Okay. What does that mean? It means that um, you have to pay attention on purpose. So you're, you're, you're choosing to shift your attention from your internal, you know, discomfort to the environment around you. So you have to sort of concentrate a bit to do that. You don't just, you know, you're really making an intentional move. So, so in a sense, that's like leaning forward, going to the front of your mind. But in fact, medically, scientifically, your prefrontal cortex is actually in the front of your mind, physically. And that is where you're going to be processing this information because your prefrontal cortex is your true executive function of your mind and your thinking function and so forth. So, so it's a great... Uh, image. So drop in your body, open up your senses and go to the front of your mind, D-O-G. And with, and in that mode, you see, you smell, you hear, and you, and, and, and before you know it, the line is gone. You have really been present. You, you, you have uh, stopped your mind wandering. And this is really important. This is a big part of the practice. Hopefully when you learn to do this, you have appreciation you have an enormous appreciation. If you've traveled the world at all, like I have, a modern-day American supermarket is a freaking miracle. It is a miracle of bounty. And most people I end up talking to, cops and executives and other people, most people who aren't in terrible poverty and, you know, before we've had this inflationary spiral, can afford almost anything in a grocery store. It's not a car showroom. It's a grocery store. So if you really want something, you know, you can get it. So it's true bounty. And uh, it's a fantastic environment. And hopefully you start to appreciate everything about it. The people who got the food, the people who made the food, the people who delivered the food, the people who are behind the, 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 the checkout counters, the people who are stocking the shelves. You just suddenly drop into some gratitude uh, and some thankfulness. That's another side product of being present in the grocery store. And then next thing you know, you're in front of the line and you're having a lovely chat with the cashier while somebody in the back of the line is mad at you for chatting <laughs> to the cashier. <laughs> yeah, I love that you brought in the aspect of gratitude. <laughs> I feel like that's often um, left out of the conversation of what's so important about the present moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So have you noticed in, in your personal practice um, this cultivation of gratitude? And is it just show up more in your daily mm -hmm. life now because of meditation? 
Uh, absolutely. My my sense of gratitude is is um, is supercharged these days. Now, uh, again, full disclosure. I am retired from my television production career. That's a good thing. <laughs> I loved my career, but uh, like everyone's career, uh, it was endless deadlines, endless uh, politics, endless uh, budgets, <laughs> limitations of budgets, uh, lots of pressure. I mean, only when I retired did I really realize how difficult and strenuous it was. I was a freelancer in television production, right? Mm -hmm. And it is, it is, you know, you think your last job was your last job. You know, and you don't know. So there's a lot of stress. So I am retired, so I am grateful to have survived my career. And as you know from the book, I barely did yeah. in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did, thank God. Uh, so I'm retired. Secondly, uh, I have enough resources, uh, you know, saved up and my wife works. So I, I don't have terrible money anxieties like I've had in the past. So, you know, I won't... Pretend it's not easier to be happier when you have a few things that are kind of checked off the list. Having said that, <laughs> I don't want to have any hubris to think that all of this couldn't change in a heartbeat. You can lose everything. Your house can burn down. You can get cancer. I mean, so I'm not pretending like this is a permanent situation, but I'm trying to be grateful for, for the time as it is now. And it's easier to be grateful when you have a little bit of security. So that's full disclosure. But on a whole nother level, uh, well, one more thing. I've moved to Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah. I've moved from Los Angeles, California to Santa Barbara, California. And it's, if you've never been to Santa Barbara, this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I really can't think of any other place like it. And I won't go into why it's so fantastic, but it is. And uh, so every day now, I wake up and I'm in Santa Barbara and I just thank God. And it's, it's, it's just helps my sense of gratitude enormously. It's so beautiful here. The mountains are so beautiful. The beaches are so beautiful. The weather is so beautiful. The people are so beautiful that I'm sort of in this kind of uh, sense of gratitude and awe, frankly. Now, again, um, try not to be too invested in that either because life is... Uh, can throw you a serious curveball at any time but right here right now I uh, have tons of gratitude yeah yeah definitely and I think it's even more important to uh, cultivate that gratitude when life throws you the curveball because that's when you need it most which is it's the hardest time as well absolutely um, when I I have a slideshow you know that I use when I teach and I show a Volkswagen bug and I go okay this is just getting through your day this is just navigating, going, going through, getting across town, getting done, just getting through your day. I said, but when the shit hits the fan and you get some serious medical problem, emotional problem, you know, your spouse or your partner walks out of your apartment and <laughs> closes the door and, you know, you're heartbroken. Uh, that's when I show a different slide and it's of a giant Hummer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this is the vehicle you need, uh, metaphorically. Uh, when 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 you really are, are facing some some serious suffering, you know what I call capital S suffering. Um, yeah, then the cushion is your best friend. Not the easiest place to be, but 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 I guarantee you, it 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 it, it won't make it worse. Uh, 
but you have to do it. And I will just say now that there's no question that I and almost every other teacher will recommend meditating every single day. The reason for that is, one, that's how the practice was meant to be. That's when it works the best. That's when it's most effective. Number two is, if you shoot for every day and you miss a couple days, you're still good. So you don't have to go crazy. If you try to get cute about it and say, well, I'll meditate on the weekends or I'll meditate on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, next thing you know, five weeks have gone by, you haven't meditated once because you got cute about it. Don't get cute about it. Get the space in your house. Create a nice space. Tell your family you're going to do, you know, the meditation thing. You need 20 minutes. Often 20 minutes is good because maybe you read a couple of pages from John Kabat-Zinn's book or Joseph Campbell's book or Dan Harris or Sam Harris or some wonderful teacher, and then you, you meditate. So you need time to get in the cushion, maybe read or listen to a guided meditation is always good. Uh, you can do it without. Uh, by the time you sit down and get up, it's probably 20 minutes, whether you've, you've got your eyes closed for 20 minutes or not. So... Um, and again, the main thing is have the intention to do it every day and then you'll do it enough. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the thing. So, so that intention is very important because then if you meditate four or five days a week, great, great, fantastic. That's yeah. fine. And you'll, and you'll thank yourself for it later. And again, you get invested in it. Like, you know, you go to the gym, you start to get stronger. you like, you know, that's your investment. You don't want to like blow it, right? Same thing. You get it going, one week. You'll be so proud of yourself if you meditate every day for a week. Imagine how proud you will be of yourself. Not that that's, not that that's an ego trip, but we have these egos and, you know, <laughs> might as well use it. So then you imagine if you meditated, you know, most of the time for two weeks. You know, most of the days for two In 14 days, let's say you did it 10 times. Imagine how, how you'd become invested in it. So it's self-perpetuating and self-generating. And it's really great. Uh, to 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 have that intention to do it every day, and it's a joy to uh, share a conversation about this practice. It's really a joy. It's my happy place. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, I feel the same way about the practice. It's done so much for me. So excited to share it with everyone. And uh, I think this is where we go. Namaste. Yeah. And during during the height of the pandemic, I used to people used to tell people, Namaste stay at home. <laughs> Terrible joke. That's like a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Yeah.